Thank you, Tom. Very exciting day to pray for the Thomases. Uh, honor, really. Uh, I've just been very encouraged myself. I've only known them for two years, I think, year and a half, two years, and been very encouraged to hear their story and watch this calling um, develop. I guess, and come to pass and see them leave next week. So very exciting, very exciting day. Today is the first day of Advent also. Um, That is also very exciting. I will not necessarily be preaching your traditional Advent sermon, and so I apologize if that's what you were looking for this morning. But um, I, I just found out it was the first Sunday of Advent this morning. And so if you're, if you're with me in that, then uh, yeah. So this might not be what you were expecting if you were looking for an Advent sermon this morning. But Advent is a very exciting season. I would, I would encourage you, if you don't have any sort of Advent reading plan, I love Advent reading plans myself. And, and I love taking this time not just this time, but I think in a focused way, taking a season like this and to meditate on Christ, to meditate on Jesus coming to the earth. And um, I would encourage you to do that if you haven't before, for sure. Well, this morning, I actually want to, um, I think this is a little bit of a part two message of what I preached last month. Um, as I was preparing last month, I don't know if you were, you were here or not, but I actually spoke on missions. And as I was preparing and as I spoke, there was a moment where I felt like the Lord kind of stopped me. It was a, a, familiar, a familiar message to me in one sense. It, it was a message I've shared before about praying for missionaries, uh, sending missionaries, and going as missionaries. But as I was preparing, I, I started to think about the way I define the person who goes, right? And similar to the Thomases or my family or others that you know who might be missionaries. And what I realized was normally when we share about this or when we think about missionaries, we tend to put them in a, in a little bit of a different category. And, and I think there's reason to, to be inspired. I think there's reason to... Um, to look at that and, and see something unique. But what I was trying to emphasize during that message last month was that that's not actually true in one sense. Now, I, I, get, I get why we do that in our human minds. We, we elevate someone who's responding in maybe a radical way or something that's very explicit but the missionary, a missionary is mostly just responding to a specific assignment. The call that a missionary has is very similar. In fact, it's the same as the call that we all have. And that's what kind of stopped me in my tracks as I was preparing last month for that sermon. And, and I want to elaborate on that this morning because I don't feel like I was able to develop it as much as as I should have. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 14. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up. And I want to attempt to open up more of a conversation. And I would say this is a conversation for myself as well, a conversation that me and my wife are having. And it's an area that we have been challenged in. And in many ways, I just want to 
challenge you and invite you into that conversation, invite you into some of the questions that we ask, and invite the Holy Spirit in our midst to speak to us in light of these things. So is that, can we do that this morning? Will, will you guys be with me on that? All right, so Luke chapter 14, verse 25 through 35. I'm going to read this, and I will pray, and then we'll jump into this passage. Verse 25, now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man went to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able to, to with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear let him hear. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. And our heart this morning is to hear from your Holy Spirit. God, we want to be more like you. That is our prayer. And I ask as we read this scripture and as we look to you this morning and think of Jesus this morning, that you would make us more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. So in this passage, you have two main things that you see. Jesus is, is telling his followers, and in an interesting way, it actually starts by saying great crowds were accompanying him. So not just his disciples, but great crowds were accompanying Jesus. And he looks to these great crowds, this large following of people, and he tells them two things. He tells them the cost of discipleship. I'm sure you're familiar with that phrase. But then he also tells them the cost of not counting the cost of discipleship. And the cost of discipleship, and this is probably something you've heard, but it's very radical, so to speak. Jesus says that you must hate your father and mother and your family and even your own life to follow me. And when he's saying that, he's not, he's not saying that in a literal sense, that you become enemies with those you are closest to. He's saying that he himself, in light of who he is, he should be infinitely greater than any desire you have on the earth or any close relationship that you have on the earth. He should be infinitely greater than that. That he should be the priority among all of those things. And then he continues and says that you even have to take up your own cross. Now, don't forget, this is before Jesus even went to the cross. This is before Jesus went to the cross, and he's saying, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. 
that would be very confusing. In fact, that would be more than confusing. That would be absurd for the followers of Jesus in that day to hear because he had not yet gone to the cross. And the cross in his day would have been like the electric chair. It would have been, it would have been the place of humiliation, but not just humiliation, punishment, execution. And they have no reference for it at this time, especially. And he's saying, if you don't bear your cross, you cannot follow me. Now, weeks, months after that, when Jesus goes to the cross, can you imagine how this message and this moment, when they watched him say that, would be piercing in their minds and in their, and in their hearts, thinking, oh, that is what he meant. Now, there's probably a hundred other things that they were reminded of at that moment too. But this one in particular, because he's telling them what to do in order to follow him. So he tells them, that is what you have to, that is the cost that you have to count. And then he continues and he gives three examples of what happens, the cost of not counting the cost is the way that I like to say it. The first one is, if you don't count the cost, you're gonna be like a builder who goes to build something. And that builder doesn't have enough supplies. What's gonna happen is people are gonna look at you and mock that decision that you made because you didn't think about what you were getting ready to do and you didn't bring it to completion. So when you don't count the cost of following Jesus, when you don't count that cost and what, it, what you will have to give up in order to follow him, it could lead to that type of mockery. The second thing he compares it to is war. And I think that in a very real way, this can relate to a spiritual warfare. When we don't count the cost, it actually leads to a spiritual warfare that Satan is out to get us. And if we do not understand what it takes to follow him, although it's free, but what it takes and what it costs, then we could lose that war. That is a war that needs to be fought, that we have to understand that we are getting ready to enter into that battle in a spiritual sense, of course. We're getting ready to enter into that spiritual battle for our souls and Satan is out to get us. And he wants us to know and understand that cost. And then the third thing he compares it to is salt. Now, salt in Jesus's day, it was frequent that salt would go bad. It would be exposed to different kind of minerals, and that salt would just have to be thrown out. It was no good. And he compares believers, not just here, but in other parts of the New Testament and the Gospels, as the salt of the earth. And if we lose our saltiness, then we're good for nothing. We should just be thrown out, is what he said. Now, these are, pretty, these are pretty extreme things to think about. They're pretty extreme if today, especially in the Western church, this, is, this type of message is not one that's easy to swallow. I mean, these types of conversations are not conversations that are easy to have. But when I read in the New Testament, when I read about the life of Jesus, these are the things that come to the forefront of my mind. Now, unfortunately, in the West, we place a high premium on things like safety, stability, and comfort. 
And I'm not even saying that those three things in and of themselves are bad. Safety, stability, comfort, those are not bad. But why do they have to be numbers one, two, and three when we think of any given decision or when we think of any circumstance? Why does it have to be, what's the safety of this? What's the stability that this is gonna lead me into? What level of comfort am I gonna have? Why can't it be numbers two, three, and four? Or three, four, and five? Okay, they, they are important, especially safety. Safety is extremely important. But why does it have to be at the top of the list? I, I, I remember hearing this story by a guy named Brother Andrew. He wrote this book called God Smuggler. Incredible book. I would recommend you get it. But Brother Andrew told this story once where him and one of his friends were in an area that was prominent uh, by a terrorist organization named Hamas. I'm sure you've heard of them. And this terror organization had actually kidnapped his friend. And in that moment, Brother Andrew's talking with these Hamas leaders, and he says to them, he says, okay, why don't you take my life instead of his? He, Brother Andrew actually says to these Hamas leaders, okay, take me and release him. And you know what happened? The Hamas leaders actually released both of them. But he had this willingness to say, I don't, I don't care about my own safety. Why don't you just take me and release him? That is not the way that we usually think when we're given an opportunity like that. I mean, I, would, I wouldn't have thought that way if I'm talking with a terrorist organization leader who kidnapped a friend of mine. I'd be calling the U.S. Embassy, hey, can you come in? You know, that's not the way that we usually think. But what's funny and what's ironic is that when we think that way, when we actually take this scripture so literal like Brother Andrew did, giving up our own life, God responds and says, okay, I'll release both of you. That's the way that God, that's the way God's reasoning and God's logic works. The second one is stability. We think of how, how big of a risk is this gonna be? How's it gonna affect my life in the future? And we think that if we make that decision or if we change our life in this way or if we redirect and go this course, it's gonna affect our future stability, our family. But what if we change our perspective and instead of thinking about that stability, we start to think about what can we sacrifice and what can we give? What if we don't have to set ourselves up to be incredibly stable, whether it's financially stable whether it's in a physical way, some sort of stability. And the third thing that I said was, was comfort. And, and this is the most prominent in many ways. I think, I think actually the highest is safety, but comfort is right up there with it. We usually think more about our own comfort. Now, let me just take one second to elaborate a little bit more on these three points, safety, stability, and comfort or maybe not these three specific ones, but the idea in general. I think that, I wanna, I wanna submit something to you. For most of church history, the question of sanctification or the issue of sanctification had, not, had mostly gone unquestioned. It was pretty certain that sanctification in church history was that we would be like Christ. It's simple. 
Sanctification through most of church history was answered that we would be like Christ. And sanctification, it's a theological term, you've probably heard it, but our life as we follow Jesus is being formed into the image of Christ. But in a day like today, where humanism is so rampant that it is actually giving way to full-fledged narcissism, humanism is so rampant that it's giving, ledge, giving way to full-fledged narcissism, what's actually happening is that the cross is no longer seen as an invitation. The cross, in many ways, in the Western world, is seen primarily as, an, as a way to alleviate our pain and our suffering. That is true. Do not hear me wrong. The cross does alleviate our pain and our suffering. There is no doubt about that. Isaiah makes that very clear. He's taken our burdens upon himself and he has gone to the cross so that we can have freedom. But what if he did not only go to the cross so you won't have to, but he went to the cross to show you how to? So today we live in an era where humanism has developed and evolved to full-fledged narcissism in this age. And more times than not, the way the cross is preached is that you don't have to feel that way. You don't have to experience that. But when you read the New Testament, that's not the primary message. That is a piece of the message. You do not have to live in your pain. You do not have to live in your suffering. He does not call us to seek for suffering. We see that with Paul. Paul was actually lowered in a basket off in Damascus so he would not have to experience suffering. We're not called to seek suffering. But what if we've replaced the definition of the cross so much so that we can't even swallow that element of suffering when it comes our way? when we're invited to experience it or when we're invited to embrace that type of cross. In every season of your life, you will have a cross to bear. In every season of your life. And that's a, that's a question that I frequently find myself asking. What is the cross to bear in this season? The question is not, Lord, why am I having to do this? You will have to do it. There is no out to bearing that cross. But there could be a question of discernment, Lord, what is that cross right now that you are inviting me to bear? As I said, Scripture doesn't ask us to seek for persecution. The Bible calls us to seek to be like Jesus, which inevitably results in persecution. Now, if that's the case with widespread lack of persecution. Now again, please hear me. I'm letting you into a conversation that I'm having. I don't know the answer to this, but if the Bible does not tell us to seek for persecution and we look at a place with widespread lack of persecution, then I'm telling you what I'm asking, Lord, why or what am I not doing to be more like you? 
Because if I'm trying to be more like you, and if I'm becoming more like you, then I will experience that type of sacrifice. I will experience that type of suffering. I will experience that type of pain, not necessarily physical pain, but sometimes affliction or emotional pain or difficulties. And so what am I doing or not doing that's leading me to not experience those things? That's a question that I'm asking. I'm I'm letting you into that question. If I'm not experiencing them, and if the church in the West is not experiencing them, why are we not experiencing them? Are there ways that we or that I myself am not embracing the cross in my life? Now, this, to me, is what Jesus is referring to in Luke chapter 14. And and I get it. I know the cost of discipleship is a common phrase. But in this day and age, I feel like it requires us to dig a little bit deeper in our souls. Now, I I want to to praise and, and exalt democracy. I think that can be definitely a reason for us to not experience it. But... I still don't think it defeats, if we believe this is true, which we do, I don't think it defeats the point that Jesus says, these things will follow those who believe. And so we have to ask that question. Now, a few things that I want to mention, when we think about safety, when we think about stability, when we think about comfort, the reason that these should not be numbers one, two, and three. Well, the obvious reason is that the glory of God should be number one. But let me take it a little bit farther. The reason they're not numbers one, two, and three is because of the obvious answers of these questions. God does not work with things that you can predict. He is very unpredictable. And when you ask those questions, for example, let's say you have for whatever reason, you've been given so much money or you've been offered this incredible opportunity and, or promotion or whatever it may be in your life, when that opportunity arises and you ask these questions, naturally what's going to pop in your head is safety, stability, and comfort. But what if the questions started to change and you begin to open that can of worms and think, what is God actually speaking to me through this? God is the God of unpredictability. We see that most clear in the Bible. You look at Abraham and Isaac. Who would go and take their son and get ready to sacrifice their son? You look at Moses who led a nation to wander in the desert for 40 years on the way to what? A promised land. What? We're in the desert. Moses led the people of Israel in a desert for 40 years because God spoke to him and told him to. You look at the prophets. The prophets are don't read the prophets if you don't want to see something shocking. Isaiah walked around for 3 years naked. He preached for three years naked. Ezekiel saw a vision of God, and for seven days, he was sitting by a river, mute, just couldn't do anything for seven days. And then you get to when God sends his son to the earth to be born of a virgin. 
God is unpredictable. And if when you ask these questions, you have a very predictable answer, my suggestion, and this is what I'm trying to do in my own life, maybe that's not the right answer. Because God usually is unpredictable in the ways that he speaks. Now, this morning, I imagine that some of us, when we came to know Jesus, that was a point that was emphasized, the cost of discipleship or evaluating what this is going to take. But for some of us, that might not have been something that was emphasized. And maybe along the way, we're realizing that we need to think about it a little bit more. And I think that's what I want to encourage you with this morning. Now, again, I, it comes across intense, but I, want, I really want to emphasize that this is, these are the questions that I've been asking myself. Because the more and more I read the Bible, the more and more I'm challenged. I don't think that missionaries are the only ones that are called to live this way. I realize that we usually think that. I realize that we usually elevate missions and missionaries because of their sacrifice, because of their life. But the call of discipleship is the same. He never said missionaries need to go and sacrifice everything and experience a level of lack and suffering and persecution. He said for all of us to experience that. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't experience joy. That doesn't mean that we don't experience Um, blessing. I believe that he gives us those things. But he primarily went to the cross to show us how we can also go to the cross. In that place, when we enter into that place, and if you've been in that place, you know what I'm talking about, but you experience a level of communion and a depth of communion that you wouldn't have experienced before. This is not just about listen and follow the rules and do what he says. He tells us to do these things because when we become like him, we can commune with him and experience a little bit of what he experienced. We touch a piece of his heart that we might not have been able to touch before. We see him in a little bit different of a way. He becomes more precious to us. It's it's a little bit of the dichotomy that exists within Christianity. Christianity is full of paradoxes. And the gift of salvation is free, but it will cost you everything. And in giving up everything, not only do you gain eternal life, but you gain communion. You gain the Holy Spirit where he will come close and he will be with you. And that's something that sometimes, I, I, you know, we work in a Muslim country and that component, when I have discussions that center around apologetics, we can't explain that. Because it's, a, it's, it's the life that comes through the Holy Spirit. And in your lives today, that is the question and that's the invitation. He's offering you so much more. He's inviting you to experience so much more, but that 
more is going to come with a cost. So Mike's going to come up here and lead us in a time of ministry, but I want to pray for us as we close and invite you to pray with me. Lord, we want to know you. God, with this subject, there's so many things that I don't even know what to say. But I know that you've invited us to be like you. And it's going to be different for each one of us in our own ways. But I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come upon us this week, today, these coming weeks, as we meditate on this. Lord, we live in a day where it is difficult to keep our spirits awake and alive. We're being lulled to sleep by the things of this world, And Lord, I'm asking that you would stir our spirits and wake us up. Lord, we don't want to seek persecution. We don't want to seek affliction. We want to seek your face. And the areas in our life where we've confused your glory and your name with safety and stability and comfort, Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit would convict us, that the Holy Spirit would speak to us because we don't know in our own strength, how to change those things sometimes. So Lord, I pray today that we would all take that time and count the cost. I just feel this word, maybe you're even sensing here this morning or counting yourself out because maybe you didn't count the cost when you came to faith. And I just feel the Lord's grace this morning. And that is not what he's speaking. But he is saying you have an opportunity to count again, to realize again that yes, this is free, but I am asking everything from you. Holy Spirit, we invite your presence. God, in this season, I pray that as we sacrifice and as we give during Advent, that we would start to see Jesus and look at him as more precious and more worthy than anything else in our lives. God, that's my prayer. We don't want to sacrifice and give for the sake of following rules, God. We know and believe that as we give and as we sacrifice, we're going to see you, we're going to encounter you, and we're going to commune with you. So Holy Spirit, would you come and minister to us this morning? Would you come and would you speak to us this morning? And would you rest upon us in Jesus' name?